0: hello everybody this is volts for april 27th 2022 volts podcast michael terrell on google's pursuit of 24 7 clean energy i'm your host david roberts one of the big energy stories of the last decade is the surprising scale and vigor of the corporate sectors push into clean energy In 2020 alone, U.S. corporate and industrial buyers procured 10.6 gigawatts of renewable energy, a third of all the renewables capacity added in the country that year. One of the earliest and most ambitious buyers was Google, which announced in 2012 that it would set out to procure renewable energy equal to its total energy consumption. It achieved that goal in 2017 and has every year since. Then, in 2020, Google announced a new goal. It wants to run all of its facilities around the world on carbon-free energy every hour of every day, 24-7. That is a much more difficult undertaking, and it involves much more than wind and solar power. I did a series of posts slash pods on the 24-7 target if you want to dig in deeper. Last week, Google released a new white paper in which it made a series of policy recommendations from clean energy standards to new regional energy markets that it argues will help it and the rest of the grid reach round-the-clock clean energy. It seemed like a good occasion to connect with Michael Terrell, Google's director of energy, to ask him how the 24-7 effort is going, what kinds of technologies might help achieve it, and what sorts of policies could help unlock it for the entire grid. So without further ado, Michael Terrell from Google. Thanks for coming to Volts. Thanks for having me. Michael, I was thinking um, before we talked with politics so utterly uh, dysfunctional (laughs) right now, and corporates playing such a sort of unexpectedly big role in energy and Google's aspirations being so ambitious and Google's resources being so extensive, you are really just kind of sitting in the, the middle of the sustainability universe <laughs> right now. So so I thought just before we jumped in, I'd love to hear sort of how long you've been with the company and how you ended up here and what is your
1: remit, sort of what is your what all are you in charge of? So I'm a global director of energy at Google. Uh, I've been at Google now for over 14 years, uh, which is a long time. uh, But that's because we've been busy during that time building an energy company within Google. And it's really been, you know, a thrill to be part of that journey. I I remember some of our very first projects uh, years ago when we were literally taking Toyota Priuses that were hybrids and converting those into plug-in Priuses because we wanted to test and see how plug-in vehicles would work because there weren't any available. I remember when we were uh, sitting in a room and decided to take on a goal to be 100% renewable uh, annual matched for our data center energy and thinking at the time, which was probably around 2012, that it would take us, you know, two decades to pull that off. And we, we did it in five years. So, you know, we've really been uh, building this capability within Google tied to our um, operations and our data centers around energy. And, you know, as we're all seeing, the, the space continues to evolve and we're making uh, really great progress on carbon-free energy and, uh, and it's enough to keep me interested. And I think it's, it's safe to say that we're still at the beginning of this journey. You know, I think the best is yet to come.
0: Google is kind of known for its um, sort of grandiose aspirations. You know, it wants to organize all the world's information. You know, has these big sort of grand long-term goals. And I sort of wonder, does it have one of those in energy and sustainability? Is there some sort of like north
1: star that you're working to in the in the long term? Well, certainly on energy, it's it's twenty-four-seven carbon-free energy. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, we've also set a net zero goal as a company, which is by 2030 achieve net zero across our entire operations and value chain for the company. But you know, I would also like to think that uh, we can have a much bigger impact in the world and certainly help the world meet this incredible challenge of climate. And uh, you know, I think that's our ultimate goal.
0: So as you say, Google is early to the idea of sort of buying enough renewable energy to offset the amount it used over the course of a year. Um, that's, a at this point, extremely familiar goal, but Google's uh, uh, early to it and early to achieve it. At this point, that goal is, I feel like, relatively easy for a company to hit at this point because just the market is flooded with cheap wind and solar and <laughs> it's not that hard to buy it in bulk. So in 2020, Google announced a new goal, which is not just buying as much renewable energy as the energy it used, but actually buying renewable energy in the hours it is using energy, i.e. matching its energy use with clean energy purchases on an hour to hour basis, so-called 24-7 energy. This is a much bigger and more ambitious <laughs> goal than just buying renewable energy in bulk, and I want to talk a little bit about the details. But there's one sort of scene-setting question I wanted to start with, and it, you know it's something you've addressed before. We we've talked about before. So one way you could approach uh, energy procurement, clean energy procurement, as a big company like Google is just we're going to reduce the maximum amount of emissions for the dollars we spend, awkwardly known as uh, emissionality. And the way you would do that in practice is just buying a bunch of cheap renewables on dirty grids. You know, like go to some grid in the Midwest and just keep buying cheap wind and solar in emissions terms. That's the biggest bang for your buck. You're not doing that. Instead, you are trying to clean up each individual grid you're on in each individual hour, which, you know, at least in the short term, will have the effect of maybe not reducing as many total net emissions. At higher cost. so what is the offsetting benefit of 24-7? What has attracted you to it beyond just sort of bulk emissions standpoint?
1: Keep in mind that 24-7 is about running carbon-free everywhere and at all times. Uh, and, and I think what you're talking about is, okay, let's go find the, the dirtiest place we can and do renewable energy projects there. And we'll tally up the uh, emissions that we save or offset and apply that to our footprint. Right. And, um, you know, I think all of these methods have their advantages and their disadvantages, but keep in mind, we're, we're, you know, we need a movement to drive a massive transformation in the economy. You know, this is not an accounting exercise. We're trying to decarbonize the global economy and so, I'm, you know, I'm not so sure it's about going off to some far off place and squeezing additional grams of CO2 reduction out of individual projects. You know, what we need is every company demanding from their utility suppliers, from their local policymakers, you know, where they operate, that they need to be run carbon free and they need to run carbon free now. And so that's, that's really what we're trying to accomplish here. It's not just about making Google run 24 seven, we want to make the electricity grids run 24 seven. And we want everyone to have a stake in that. And so, you know, setting this goal that, hey, we're going to run carbon free everywhere and at all times, everywhere where we have an uh, operations really gives you a kind of a stake in in the places where you run that you maybe haven't had before. Mm -hmm. And ideally, we want thousands of companies doing this. You know, again, uh, this can be an incredible engine for change, I, I'm not, you know, saying that the other method is not something that could be effective because it certainly could. But I think if you take the long view and you take the view of really driving entire power grids to carbon free as fast as possible, um, you know, having that sort of uh, a movement from companies and a push from companies could be something that would be um, super beneficial.
0: Yeah. So the reason it's different than the bulk emissions perspective is because you know the sort of intermittency of renewable energy. So you know, if you're on, say, uh, you know, an Iowa grid. You've bought a bunch of wind. Um, There comes a point where buying more wind is not going to cover more hours, right? Mm Because the wind is only blowing when the wind is blowing. And there are hours when the wind is not blowing. So taking this 24-7 perspective means filling the gaps that wind and solar leave behind, right? Filling those in. And that's the fascinating sort of conceptual puzzle of it. So you've divided, you know, your approach to, to doing this into sort of three pillars we've discussed before. I thought we would walk through those. They sort of um, proceed from the kind of individual company procurement decision out to broader questions. So starting close to home, the first pillar is just transacting for energy. That's the first approach to doing this. So, uh, you know we, know, we understand it'll be bulk wind and solar most places. But in terms of filling those gaps, I'm curious, now that you've had two years, what in practice are you actually buying to fill those gaps? I know there are some, a lot of future techs we're going to talk about that could help with them. But in terms of what's out on the market today, what are you, what are you transacting beyond wind and solar?
1: It's a great question, and and you know when we set this goal, we weren't really sure what we were going to find out on the market. But you uh, know, once we went public, we found that energy suppliers have really come forward with really great solutions. And so, you know, what we've been doing is. Uh, You know, instead of going to a solar developer or a wind developer and say, hey, we want to sign a power purchase agreement for 100 megawatts of solar, um, we've gone to energy providers and said, hey, we want to reach, you know, 80% or 90% carbon free in this location. Can you put together a portfolio of assets that can help us do that? And so we've now done some of these deals. We did a deal with AES in Virginia for our Virginia data centers where they're packaging a portfolio of new assets, so new wind, new solar, storage, some run-of-river hydro, mm. um, to help us to take that site to 90% plus carbon-free. We've done a similar deal with Angie and Germany. And uh, and so we're seeing these kinds of solutions emerge in the market where we can mix and match resources. Now, um, you know, to your point, it's mainly technologies that have already been scaled, so mostly wind and solar, uh, also storage, and um, we're seeing a little bit of um, of hydro as well. So, um, you know, we still have a lot of work to do on some of the newer technologies, and we can talk about that. But in terms of contracting, um, you know, we're starting to see m- more opportunities to mix and match resources, um, which can really help you push into those higher percentages of carbon free.
0: One of the interesting things about approaching 24-7 as a company is that it's sort of a miniature version of what the whole economy is doing mm-hmm. slightly longer term, right? Which is trying to get to 24-7. So you're you're, you're addressing all these challenges that are going to be more widely addressed first. And one of the big questions about that larger effort is how far can we get with currently commercial technologies, right? Wind and solar, and then mostly sort of, I think, storage To fill most of the gaps and then a little, you know, a little hydro here and there, nuclear where there are plants running, hydro where there's plants running. Have you discovered that you're able to get a little farther with just that stuff than you thought you might be able to? Like how far can you get with the tools that are currently on the table?
1: Yeah, well, we have now. Five sites that we've taken to over ninety percent clean, and um, there's there's a few factors that 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 come into play. Uh, one or what are the assets that are already on the grid? Is the grid all does it already have a lot of hydro or a lot of nuclear or a lot of wind? Uh, that's certainly a factor. And if you're starting, you know, if your starting point is a forty percent clean grid, that's a lot better than a starting point that's a ten percent clean grid. So right. so that certainly helps. So what the state of the grid is where you're located is a is a factor. And then also, just what's the resource look like in that region? You know, is it a is it a region that has a really great solar resource? Is it a region like Iowa that has a really great wind resource? And so those factors come into play too. Like how just how much can you contract for those particular resources? The biggest factor that we've seen is really just location. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are a lot of places now in the U.S. where you can get to high penetrations of renewables, and especially if you have a regionalized grid. And we'll talk a little bit about that, I'm sure, when we uh, talk. About about policy. That's a big factor. And then also just again, is, is there a really strong wind resource or a strong solar resource? And then other areas like take, for example, Singapore or Taiwan, where you're really limited on land, uh, you're limited in terms of the wind resource or the solar resource, it's much, much harder. And uh, and so what we found is um, the regional differentiation is much higher than we would have thought. Right, right.
0: Are there any places where you've been able to get over 90 that that might surprise people? Like, are are they, you know, more or less where you would expect?
1: Yeah. So Oregon, Iowa, Oklahoma, Finland, Denmark. um, I'm not so sure if any of those would surprise people. (laughs) I I think uh, a lot of our sites certainly have that potential um, with Asia being the hardest by far.
0: That's mostly wind, I'm guessing, in those places you just listed,
1: mostly wind and and hydro doing the bulk? Uh, wind, solar, hydro, uh, some nuc- existing nuclear as well, especially mm. in um, the European sites. Um, so it's really a mix. Right. Okay, so that's pillar one is just
0: transacting for energy resources that are out there now. Pillar two is, I guess you'd call it technology development, which is sort of looking ahead at what technologies will be needed to get to this goal in 2030 and doing what you can to push those along. So on on that I have sort of two questions. One is what can a company do? I mean that's what you're talking about there is basically industrial policy, right? I mean th- theoretically <laughs> the kind of thing that the US government ought to do is be, you know, paying for R&D and paying for tech development and offering those market push and pull policies. But what can, um, you know, a big corporate do to induce technology development in the way you're trying to do? And then secondly, sort of what are the most promising kind of just over the horizon tools that you think are going to help you?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I think one thing we found is there's no question that we're going to need to see some advancements on the technology side. Uh, wind and solar and storage alone are not going to be enough to get us to 24-7 carbon-free energy or to get a lot of grids around the world to 24-7 carbon-free energy. And right. I think that's been a big learning, too. Um, and again, it's another reason why setting this goal, I think, uh, you know, requires you to take a much more holistic approach into how you think about the problem. Um, so there's really two pieces to this. There's the generation side, which you touched on, um, but there's also demand. So on the generation side, yeah, we need to find new sources of power generation beyond wind, solar and storage, or we need to have long duration storage that can you can pair up with those existing assets um, that'll help you get to 24-7. And so, you know, we've been looking at uh, a number of technologies in the, on the generation side, whether it's advanced geothermal or hydrogen or carbon capture or nuclear We've signed a deal with a company, uh, Fervo Energy, out of Texas that's piloting a new advanced geothermal process, uh, and we're working with them in Nevada right now on a project that would power our data centers in that state, Mm. and it uses some of these advanced uh, geothermal technologies. So, okay, what can Google do? we can certainly go to those who are developing these technologies and sign deals to get them uh, piloted or deployed right. um, and we're also working on the policy side which i know we'll get to um in a, in a minute uh, because again if you the, the us doe has said there's 120 gigawatts worth of new geothermal Potential in the United States, uh, you know, and so how can we tap that asset and really get that to expand and scale? So certainly on the generation side, you know, being an off taker, sending signals to the market that we're willing, uh, ready, and willing to try these technologies. Um, The other thing is is looking at the capabilities we have as a company. You know, we're a technology company, and uh, you know, we have capability around data and around compute. And, uh, you know, one of the things we started doing is now using machine learning to manage a large portion of our U.S. wind portfolio to sort of optimize those wind farms and oh, how they um, interact with the market. So we're actually forecasting the production of wind mm. and um, bidding those wind farms into the market day ahead um, which provides you know, better probability of getting uh, a higher revenue stream and, and makes those assets more attractive to the market. So, um, you know, using our capabilities around machine learning to make some of these existing resources work better. Another thing that we're doing is starting to shift the actual loads in our data centers, So shift our consumption around both in time and in place to align with the times of the day that the grids are the cleanest. I'm
0: curious what you found, how much of your sort of computing load can be moved like that? Like how much of it is under, you know, how much of it is sort of fixed has to be done in real time and how much of it is adjustable. uh.
1: Mm. We're still discovering that because it's early stages. But, you know, there are a lot of services, whether it's storage or adding new features to, you know, Google Photos or other products that are not necessarily time sensitive as, you know, running a Google search would be. And so that the compute can be shifted. And, you know, we're finding more and more that we, you know, we have capability to shift maybe more than we thought. So, It's still early stages on that, but I think it's a promising development. And I think it also underscores that, you know, to reach 24-7 carbon-free energy, it's not just about finding advanced forms of power generation. You've got to get a lot smarter in managing demand and Mm -hmm. that sort of dance between generation and demand. And so that's something that we're, you know, working on now. We're still, like I said, early stages, but, you know, we've made some promising progress and I think we're excited about some of the opportunities that we're seeing.
0: On the generation side, of course, everybody's going to want me to ask about small nukes or advanced nukes, whether you've, whether any of those have, you know, kind of struck you as far enough along that you actually signed, you know, signed some deals, offer up some money. Same thing about hydrogen. Like, have you actually found any actual projects? Have you signed any deals with any actual projects yet? Or are you looking around?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, the the first public deal that we've done in this area is around advanced geothermal, but we're certainly looking at these other technologies. And, you know, there's been a lot of progress that's made um, around hydrogen, around nuclear in recent years. And so I, I do think that there are opportunities there with those technologies that certainly we're looking at. So, um, so stay tuned. But, you know, we're mm-hmm. not taking, we're at a point right now where we're not taking anything off the table. Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm curious a little bit too about storage. You know, whether you have any sort of, uh, you know, kind of storage tech that you're looking into long term. I'm particularly interested at the moment in thermal storage, whether you have your (laughs)
1: eye on that uh, at all or anything else in this kind
0: of storage realm.
1: Yeah, we're looking at um, a number of different storage technologies. We already use storage um, within our data centers. Um, We have signed uh, power purchase deals that involve storage. But um, this is an area that I think is, you know, super exciting. And especially if you think about a longer duration storage and pairing that up with dirt cheap, solar and wind, you know, that could be game changing in a lot of places. And so, you know, absolutely, it's an area that um, we're looking at.
0: I, I assume you're not going to tell me uh, any more specifics until you guys announce
1: deals. <laughs> are there, are there a deal announcements coming anytime soon? I would like to think that you'll see a steady stream coming from us, um, you know, in the near future. Hopefully,
0: right, right, right. So, piece one is buying, you know, stuff that's currently on the market. Piece two is trying to uh, induce or accelerate the development of technology pieces, on supply or demand that will be needed through twenty thirty, and so then the third pillar is the overall grid, the policy piece. And this is something you just, Google just released a new white paper about. Uh, So I have, you know, a couple of different questions in this area, but maybe you could just tell us, sort of uh, give us kind of a a broad overview of what the key policies Google sort of has identified that need to shift Uh, You know, because the obvious context here is there's only so much Google can do (laughs) within the, you know, with it's sort of within the current regulations and laws uh, that it finds itself. So in some sense, it's going to need help from governments to get to its 2030 target. So it's been sort of looking for which policies are the key levers. Uh, And so may just give us, uh, if you can, an overview of what of what you found there.
1: Yeah. And, and before I get to that, I just want to, you know, go back to the question around, you know, why are we doing 24-7 carbon-free energy and why have we set this goal for ourselves? Mm-hmm. And part of it is because of policy. Um, what we we're finding with companies that had these 100% renewable energy goals, us being one of them is that you can accomplish that simply by going and finding where renewable energy is the cheapest, buying a whole bunch of it, and then applying it to your annual consumption. And you know there you go. Right. And again, like, why are we all doing this? <laughs> we're all mm-hmm. doing this because we're trying to solve for climate change. What do we need to solve for climate change? We need rapid decarbonization of grids around the world, and we need to electrify everything. So if you're 100% renewable and you're buying cheap renewables, you're not really necessarily driving this, this grid transformation that we all need to see. You're
0: certainly not driving change on the grid where you're located, right? I mean, you might be like driving more renewable procurement in those distant, dirty grids where you're buying from, but it's the local connection that's missing, right? It's sort of yeah. like where you, where you live, where you operate.
1: Yeah, and and you know another thing we were seeing was in some areas where renewables were really cheap, uh, there was over-procurement of renewables. Mm-hmm. So adding more renewables even when you don't need it to drive the prices negative. And so, again, ha- having companies set these goals and, and going around the world and procuring is a awesome thing. And so I don't want to diminish that at all. It's um, We've seen incredible progress with that, and it's great to see so many companies doing it. But if you're continuing along the journey, this is really the next step. And that, you know, makes you look at every grid where you operate. And I don't think anybody's gonna get to 24-7 without the grids themselves getting cleaner too. And so it it forces you to care about the carbon mix of the grids where you operate. And if that mix were to get dirtier, then you'll you'll certainly care. And you would like to think that. Uh, you know, companies will care about trying to make that carbon mix cleaner. So can I ask a question about that? Actually, since you bring that up, I'm sort of, this is probably an unanswerable
0: question, but sort of, as you say, the renewable, just get to 100% renewables goal has become pretty easy, such that it's sort of like a low hanging fruit for a lot of companies. Now they can just do it and put a badge on their website and, you know, get a little PR boost without undue effort. So I'm curious now that you've opened up this sort of next level of Ambition, and it's a level of ambition that companies cannot just sit back and do easily, right? It, it, it sort of forces their engagement because, as you say, like to reach the goal requires help from you know other companies and other jurisdictions and and, and governments. So, in a sense, it's uh, it, it forces greater engagement. So, I'm sort of curious: what's the balance do you think in the corporate sector of of companies that were perfectly fine just? Dumping a little money on renewables and getting the badge versus companies that were actually, you know, because I've talked with some executives over the years who want to do more and it's just not always clear. Like, what is what's the metric? What do you do next? Right. So did you find there was a lot of pinup appetite for people wanting this, wanting
1: more ambition? I, I think it's a great question. Um, first of all, I think there are a lot of companies that would take issue with you saying 100% renewable is easy. It's it's still <laughs> it's still really hard, and it's it's really hard for a lot of companies. And it and it depends on you know a lot of companies have thousands of you know stores or operate you know parts of their business around the world. So it's it's hard to do. But you know at the same time, if you're really focused on solving this problem and true decarbonization then it really gets you to this next step. I think one thing we we need to think about as we think about corporate standard setting and greenhouse gas protocols is, you know, what sort of actions do we want to be incentivizing and, you know, is it better uh, for a company to be, you know, 50% carbon free, you know, globally across all its operations? Or is it better to be 100% renewable? I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I but I do think sometimes there's a little bit of a push to be able to check a box and and say, yep, we're clean. And, uh, you know, these are really hard problems that we're trying to solve. And, and there's no shame in talking about how hard it is to solve these problems. And, you know. I applaud a company that goes from 10% to 30% carbon-free over a period of time, you know, as much as I do one that's, you know, reached 100% renewable. I mean, everybody's on their own journey. And, uh, you know, what we want to do is encourage action.
0: One thing you want to do is is align uh, incentives, right, so that you get more PR advantage, more kudos, whatever, more kudos for efforts that make more of a difference, right? You want to align those incentives and and one of the problems with that, I mean, uh, and this is something that I was asking about back when 24 seven first came on the scene is, it's a big jump in ambition, a big jump in difficulty, but is it a big jump in kudos? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, is it worth it for an average company? Does the public even know what it means to hit this goal? You know what I mean? Like, it, it seems like part of the effort has to be sort of education and, 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 you know, getting this such that the incentive is, is big, you know, such that it's a big achievement and people get celebrated for hitting it. Like, do you, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And, and I think we, we need the, the standards and those who sort of monitor what companies are doing to really focus more on real meaningful actions, you know, instead of box checking. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think there's a, there's a big discussion around that right now and there, and it's, you know, and we should be having it, you know, what sort of um, signals do we want to be sending to companies? I mean, to me, companies have such an amazing ability to um, drive transformation in the markets and, you know, they intersect the economy in so many different ways. And if you can get them to sort of lean into their strengths and, and and you know, finding ways to to innovate through the things that they're already doing, that I think is going to ultimately drive, you know, more reductions over the long haul. Have you done research on what the public thinks? Like, I'm, I'm
0: curious if the public knows what to make of 24/7, uh, or, or where the public kind of is on it.
1: Yeah, I'm not so sure they knew what to make of 100 percent renewable, <laughs> you know, or <laughs> right. when we said we were when we pledged to go carbon neutral in 2007. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we care as a, a company because we care as a company about getting to the right place here. And, um, yeah, the reward system for companies, uh, needs to be set up in a way to drive the right behaviors. Uh, and that's certainly a a conversation that we're part of and we want to be part of, you know, but at the end of the day, we're, we're driving towards a North star, which is get this company decarbonized as fast as possible and hopefully take the systems along with us. Right, right. So that brings us to policy.
0: What are the, you know, what are the sort of top line items that Google is kind of calling for with this new white paper?
1: Yeah, well, I think the overarching lesson here is that you have to have smart policies to, to drive transformation and energy. And I think we all know that. I think we also know that there's no silver bullet, that it's, you need a comprehensive set of policies to get us there. And so that's really what our our paper was trying to accomplish was to really identify, you know, all of those uh, pathways that we think are going to be necessary to get grids to carbon free. And so, you know, we really think of it in three different ways. I mean, the first is how do we advance the technology? How do we get wind and solar to scale, mm-hmm. you know, for example, through clean energy standards? How do we take the newer technology through the development process, you know, through R&D policies? You know, how do we expand markets and design markets in a way that drives uh, decarbonization? So that gets to regional market design and, you know, valuing the flexibility that um, you can have with managing demand better. And then lastly, how can we empower consumers? You know, how can we give everybody a direct path to purchasing clean energy? How can we have more transparency in the data and the systems in which we operate? So those are really the, th- the, the three big buckets. And there's many, many things you can do under each, you know, that we laid out in our paper.
0: Yeah, yeah. So on the first, on the first, the sort of technology development piece, you come out, you know, renewable energy standards or clean energy standards. Everybody's big on those now. But of course, on this score, one of the most effective policies that everyone is aware of is tax credits, and there's a big package of tax credits <laughs> sitting <laughs> sitting somewhere in some vault. <laughs> I picture like at the end of Indiana Jones, the, the giant vault. Somewhere yeah. in a vault there is a big package of tax credits from the Build Back Better Act that um, allegedly everyone agrees on or almost agrees on. Allegedly everybody's willing to pass and yet no one seems to be passing. So this seems like, particularly on that score, an area where some loud voices from the corporate sector might be welcome at this point, which is a long winded way of asking, <laughs> are you up in, in DC lobbying to get this friggin' build back better yeah. over the finish line?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've made multiple public statements on, you know, getting those measures through and getting them passed. Um, you know, we're, we regularly meet with stakeholders in DC and on the Hill, but you know, the thing is, is it takes, Uh, more than just signing on to letters. I mean, you have to build this broad base of support for these policies. And, you know, that's certainly something we've been working on hard as well. I mean, we were a founder of an organization called the Clean Energy Buyers Alliance. I chair the board. And that's, you know, companies from, you know, GM to Johnson & Johnson to Microsoft to Walmart across many, many sectors. And, you know, that group has come out in support of a 90% clean energy grid in the U.S. by 2030, you know, regionalized energy markets, and as you know, we're really trying to build the policy capability of this organization and, and getting these companies more involved in it, because, you know, you, it really does take building uh, a broad base of support. And that and that's certainly something that we're strongly working to do.
0: Do you find that when you approach, you know, sort of approach partners in those kind of coalitions, Do you, do you find pretty broad agreement on policy? Like, is everybody more or less on board with kind of the... You know, because it used to be that carbon taxes were all everybody's obsessed with carbon taxes, but lately, kind of things seems to have shifted. Everybody's into this sort of industrial policy of of clean energy standards and tax credits and things like this. Do you find that people are mostly on board with that, or is there a lot of education and wrangling about policy?
1: They're mostly on board with it. They just don't know how to. They don't know how or what to do. Right. And <laughs> uh, and 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 I think that's one of the things we're trying to provide for companies is a way for them to get involved a roadmap for advocacy um, and again I think it gets back to recognizing that you know policy advocacy is an important part of every company's sustainability journey and you know we have to find ways to recognize you know good work and good efforts there but um, but yeah I know it, it's it's a relatively new thing mm-hmm. you know for you know major companies getting involved in these clean energy policies we've been doing it for years at Google I mean we were lobbying in Taiwan years, you know, years ago to create a path for companies to go and buy renewable energy directly. And we were working to create programs in places like Georgia and North Carolina, but, um, but most companies are not involved at that level. Um, I, but I think they're, enth- they're enthusiastic and supportive of getting more involved. They just don't know how to do it.
0: Mm. And also there's some organization around 24 seven too, isn't there? Uh,
1: that's right. Yeah. We have created a, a compact with the UN oh, right. that's um, basically a mechanism for companies and organizations to sign on, to sort of take the pledge to reach 24 seven carbon free energy. And then it shares tools and resources with, uh, with, with everyone who signed on to help them get there.
0: Is there a lot of international uh, interest? Is yeah, this absolutely. An international
1: phenomenon. Do you think? Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's getting a lot of momentum. No question.
0: And so the other um, policy recommendation piece is about markets. A um, couple of questions about markets, but the big looming question that everybody in the energy world is slightly obsessed with is whether there's going to be a Western market, yeah. whether Western states are going to get involved in some sort of RTO. Um, you know, for for listeners who don't. Know what this means. <laughs> good God, it's complicated, but <laughs> but basically uh, most of the country, I think now two-thirds of ratepayers, I think, are in are in states that are involved in wholesale energy markets, regional wholesale energy markets. And the West sort of legendarily doesn't have one. There's a California, you know, RTO just in California, but there's not one that spans Western states. And the last time I looked into this, I wrote a long article about this for Vox year ago, And it, it seemed like there was momentum, but at the same time, I haven't heard a ton about it since then. So what's your, what's your,
1: how are you getting involved in that? And what's your read on the kind of appetite for it? So establishing these markets is incredibly important. And, you know, for the, for the layperson, it's, it's essentially managing the power grids across multiple states, and when you do that over a larger area, it allows you to manage the variability associated with wind and solar. It also delivers efficiencies to the system, and it also gives uh, companies more of a direct path to go and contract for clean energy themselves. And you know we have these these markets in some parts of the United States, but not others, and uh, they're incredibly important. If I could you know name a have a top five list of things I'd like to see, this would be on the list. Are all your high performing (laughs) plants in areas with markets? Yeah. And and let me give you uh, another example. If you look at uh, all of the corporate renewable energy buyers uh, and purchases that have been made in the United States, 90% of them are happening in these markets with regional wholesale markets or deregulated Mm. retail markets. And only 10% are happening in these vertically regulated markets. So it's incredibly important And yeah, we've been, you know, working really hard on this. Um, But I should tell you, Dave, and you're from the South, like if I could have my my pick between the West or the Southeast, I would create one of these in the Southeast. I really really want both. But, you know, the Southeastern U.S. is really a set of balkanized utility grids. And, um, you know, we've been working really hard with advocates down there to try to get uh, an RTO established in the Southeast. And we've had legislation introduced in the Carolinas and, uh, you know, made a lot of progress, but we still have a long way to go. But we need one there and in the West. Well, Southern utilities are
0: legendarily, uh, let's, yeah. say, <laughs> let's say, not on board with maybe all this. I'm extra curious what your reception is down there. I,
1: I don't know why they wouldn't be on board with, you know, delivering savings to all of their customers, because that's what these markets do. But um, but anyway, we're, we're making progress, but I completely agree. You know, we need these uh, regional markets. They're super important to... Um, reaching deep decarbonization. And the two areas of the country that are really lacking them are the Western United States and the Southeast. And we're working in both.
0: Right. The Southeast just passed some sort of like quasi- Semi, little bit of a market thing.
1: Uh, it it sounded, sa- yeah, it sounded like a lot more than it ultimately was. It was really a, a proposal to allow the utilities to trade some power over the borders, mm. but it wasn't going to create the full um, wholesale market that you want to see created. Right, right. So you know, new markets are
0: great. Of course, lots of people have lots of different. Complaints about how current markets uh, existing markets operate as well are there particular wholesale market reforms that you have your eye on
1: there's a long and wonky list of reforms <laughs> that I'll probably <laughs> won't bore your listeners with with going into but performance based performance based regulation Yay. yeah all of these markets could work better um, I would say you know the the big thing we need to learn how to do is to value all of the attributes that um, either a demand side program or a generation technology bring into the market. So for example, if I run a large program that cuts demand, can I treat that as a virtual power plant and bid that into the market? Can that get valued in a certain way? Mm-hmm. Are we valuing clean energy resources the way that we should um, relative to others? Are we, are we valuing clean energy resources that also are firm and dispatchable? Uh, you know, base load, so to speak, right. the way we should. So, you know, there are, um, you know, I would say reforms like that, that could improve the regional markets. But the most important thing is is we should have regional market in every every part of the United States, no question.
0: I'm sort of curious about in, your engagement, if there is any with sort of state regulators, you know, sort of public utility commissions of the world. Because one of the things I hear from from reformers in the electricity world is, These organizations, these PUCs, have their hands on an enormous amount of sort of the nation's emissions. Like they have their uh, hands on enormous levers of change, but they rarely come in for much, uh, you know, (laughs) scrutiny or examination. Like most of the meetings, you know, are, are sparsely attended. Like, so it's sort of this ripe area where a little bit of intervention seems like it could have a big effect. So I'm curious whether you are, you know, in dialogue with state PCs.
1: Yeah, we we have a team that has people in every region that engages with within these forums and you know, I've gotten to spend quality time in places like Des Moines, Iowa and Oklahoma City, you know, talking to commissioners and testifying before commissions. You know, on these very issues, and you're exactly right. They play a huge role in you know charting the future course of the electricity system. Um, I will say that they're only as good as the laws in which they operate under, Mm. and it's the overarching laws, which in many cases are decades old and outdated, Mm -hmm. that um, really set up the structure in which the systems operate. And you know, so those need to be changed as well. That's why DC gets a lot of attention. But these these state and regional policies are just as important. And there's a lot of uh, work that can be done there. And again, getting back to what can companies do? You know, my favorite thing to do is to actually go talk to, you know, quote unquote, red state governors about, you know, the investment that we want to bring to their states, uh, the work that we want to do on clean energy. And uh, you can win a lot of converts that way. And, uh, you know, again, what we need are more companies you know, delivering that message. Right, right. And
0: one other sort of uh, um, often overlooked fulcrum for change in this area is FERC. Um, You know, when you were talking about trying to allow virtual power plants in in markets or, or trying to get, you know, different kinds of resources valued based on their different attributes you know that brings to mind FERC FERC just you know the order 22 or whatever it was you know allowed some of these distributed energy resources in markets are you engaged in FERC proceedings uh right now are you is that an area of scrutiny for you
1: yep yeah same thing we have a you know we're part of business coalitions we have members of the team that engage in FERC and you know FERC policy is just as important you know i think you know one message i would stress is that you know energy policy is climate policy mm-hmm. and so you know doing things like establishing rtos or improving rtos or improving state regulatory policies to you know promote more clean energy those can have huge benefits to the climate and we've made a lot of progress on energy policy in the last you know 10 15 years and so You know, and it also has, I think, more opportunity for broader-based bipartisan support. And so, um, you know, these are areas that we think are real important.
0: As you mentioned, the third piece is empowering consumers. I'm curious sort of about the pieces of that. But one that I'm especially curious about is sort of, you know, one of the big stories about the current grid evolution is the sort of dispersion of generation and storage and energy resources generally you know, such that you have the grid edge is full of these resources that need coordination. And so this raises um, problems for grid operators, right, trying to get visibility into all these things. But it also is an area where consumers are directly involved. So I'm sort of curious, um, you know, whether you have particular thoughts or policies you'd like to see reformed around, particularly around distributed energy resources.
1: I think the important element here for us is any consumer whether it's a residential consumer or a company or a big or a big you know corporation should have a direct path to clean energy if they want it and um you know like the climate crisis is severe enough that we we need to be enabling people to move as fast as they want to get to a carbon-free future and so you know absolutely so what does that mean in practice that means enabling people to put solar panels on their roofs or allowing companies to do direct, have direct access into you know purchasing from large utility scale assets it's you know it's all of those things across the board and you know there are a lot of barriers to customers and companies doing that right now and there's a lot of easy things we can do to remove those barriers does it increase the challenges with managing the grids of course but is it possible to manage the grids in the wake of all that absolutely and, you know, you're seeing places do that now. So um, so we really need to remove those barriers. It seems like um, this whole area of sort of managing highly
0: dispersed, small-scale resources and coordinating them across regions and everything, that just seems like a very information-heavy, software-heavy, coordination-heavy, it seems like the kind of thing that Google ought to be all up in, not just as a advocate, but as a, you know, sort of a participant. Are you... Are you at work on, like,
1: products and stuff in that area? You know, from our perspective, we look at these problems and we see them as infinitely solvable. The changes that we're seeing happening with the electricity system are much, much less severe than changes you've seen in other industries that have been completely transformed in the past 10 or 20 years. So, you know, yes, we can manage all of this. Um, You know, can we help? Possibly. And, you know, we're looking into that. But I also think there's plenty of room for you know, lots of folks to develop solutions. And, you know, you're starting to see that and there's a lot of exciting things happening.
0: If you indulge me uh, as I play the cynic for just a, a few moments, you know, there's a long history in the sustainability area of greenwashing and accusations of greenwashing and discussions about greenwashing and what it means and what sort of what corporations' obligations are and what it means to really be involved. And I know that, I mean, one of the evolutions I've seen has been one that I think there used to be a lot of very empty greenwashing. And now at the very least, there is a vanguard of companies that are genuinely engaged in this. But when it comes to lobbying and policy, I guess here's the way I'd put it. Like if there were a bill on the floor of Congress to break up Google's search monopoly or force it to separate search from email or I don't know what's on the table, but like something that threatened Google's core business model. I think we can all envision like how Google would react to that. Like it wouldn't just be issuing statements right? <laughs> and, and signing on to coalitions. It would be in DC throwing money around, throwing elbows around, you know, like twisting arms. It would be, you know, it'd be blitzing. And so I guess a, a lot of people in the sustainability world sort of wonder like, when do are we going to see that? When are we going to see, you know, these companies in DC acting as though, you know, this is a core issue as opposed to just sort of you know, it's easy to sort of call for things, you know, it's easy to sign on to things and call for things. So, you know, how do you address sort of the cynic? Do
1: you feel like Google has got skin in this game in a way that is new? I think it's a fair question. And, you know, to put it in the context of corporate sustainability, it it should be the next evolution in corporate sustainability. You know, I think we all recognize that policy is going to be absolutely crucial to solving for climate change. So why are we not, you know, measuring companies against their work in that space? You know, we've been at it for quite some time. um, But yeah, we could be doing more just like everyone else. And I think we really need to be finding ways to encourage companies to do that and showing them the way to do that, because um, I think it can be a very strong force for positive change in this space. And we've certainly seen that in some of the work that we've done around clean energy in places, like I've mentioned, in Asia and in the, in the U.S. states. Um, we're trying to build up the capabilities so, so companies can get more involved in D.C. through SEBA and other groups like that. Um, but I'd like to see more. And, uh, you know, and, and we should see more if, um, if we're serious about solving this problem.
0: Okay, so I've kept you for a long time. I guess uh, by way of conclusion, this effort of going after 24 seven, you know, it's, um, <laughs> my, my sense is that you pull this 24 seven string long enough and it, you find it attached to everything. I don't know what the famous quote is, but like, you know, if you follow the implications of 24 seven long enough, you find that sort of you end up needing to change everything and everyone <laughs> at the same time. To, you kind of all have to get there together. Right. So I'm sure there are aspects of this that you could not have anticipated when you first announced this goal. So I guess, you know, in the two years you've been, you know, really digging in, pursuing what's necessary for this. Are there things you have learned that were unexpected? Are there difficulties that were unexpected? Are there things that were easier than expected so far? I mean, it's still early in the process, but what's surprised you so far?
1: The benefit is having a goal that fundamentally solves the problem, right? And we need more of those. <laughs> we need right. more of those goals, like especially like the, in the
0: climate world. Those exactly. are those are late coming.
1: The, the the time for interim steps and measures is over. Yeah. We all need to be orienting ourselves towards what are the things that we fundamentally have to change to solve these problems. And you know what? If you're twenty or thirty or forty percent there instead of one hundred percent towards a halfway measure that checks the box, right. you know that might be a better place to be. But you know, orienting ourselves towards really driving the changes in the economy that we need to, to change, I think is something that uh, we all need to do. And I, and I think we've been somewhat surprised uh, at what we've seen as we've embarked down this road of all the areas we didn't think to look or weren't looking at because mm. we weren't trying to fundamentally solve the problem. Like exactly. not thinking about how uh, electricity demand, you know, relates to supply, not thinking about certain regions of the world saying, oh, we'll just deal with those later, not dealing with certain kinds of Facets of our business, so not thinking about policy in the way that we should. So, I, I think the lesson on twenty four seven is really like: can we all get more focused on the real problems that we have to solve and work together to try to solve them? Um, because you know, we we don't have a lot of time, and we need to be moving much more, uh, much faster.
0: Right. My hope, I guess, my optimistic take on all this is that you know we have a pretty we have a pretty consistent record at this point of decades of once we start looking and trying finding out that things move faster than we think and are cheaper than we think and are easier to solve than we think. And just following the 24 seven string as I, you know, pursuing that goal just gets, as you say, people looking in places they hadn't looked before. And I just, I just think they're going to find a bunch of tools, right. That they didn't even know they had. Like there's going to be a bunch of ways to get at this that we don't even know about yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, tying it back to my tenure at Google, uh, you know, the benefit of being here as long as I have is that I've I've gotten to see things that we thought were absolutely impossible. <laughs> you know, uh, I never thought we would see electric vehicles scale the way that they've scaled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never thought that we would be doing solar deals in the southeastern U S that are cheaper than what's on the grid. I never thought that we would be procuring renewable energy at gigawatt scale. Uh, but you know, we're doing all of those things now. And, you know, a couple of years ago, 24 seven seemed completely, uh, you know, like a moonshot and something that's not possible. And I, and I can promise you that pretty soon here, it's we're going to be showing that it is possible. So I think it's, you know, there's a lot to be discouraged about in the world, especially on the policy (laughs) side, but there's also a lot to be encouraged about. And, um, you know, I'm certainly excited for the future. And I think we're really entering a period where we're going to see a lot more of this kind of change, which is exciting.
0: Yes, these are, uh, you know, these, as the Chinese saying goes, uh, interesting times (laughs) on all all sides. Uh, Well, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you, you know, for your work over the years on this. Like I said, you're in kind of a I don't know, is it the catbird seat? Or is it the hot seat, one of those? <laughs> Probably both. <laughs> Some kind of seat where you can see a lot of, of what's going on around. So it's uh, it's been fascinating to follow. So thanks
1: for coming on. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, Please consider becoming a paid VOLTS subscriber at volts.wtf, yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.